Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi and guten Tag. This is Tanit Koch. I do a bit of German planning every week in the New European. I write on Germany and how Germans relate to Britain and the rest of Europe. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Hello, snowflakes, and welcome back to The New European Politics Podcast from the people who bring you The New European. My name is Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of The New European. If you like what we do, you want to be sure of getting a copy of our newspaper and access to our online archive, you can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Coming up this week, our Christmas party podcast has been cancelled. So it's a new European cheese and wine business meeting that definitely is socially distanced. We've got uh, the new Europeans, Alistair Campbell, Clark Nihanila and John Kampfner. Will 2022 be any better than 2021? Who are the people, the places and the events to watch out for? What are we going to be talking about when we come back here for our 2022 Christmas special in 12 months time? You will find out in this podcast. And later on, I'll be reading a very bad poem. And as usual, I'll be putting some very bad people in the hall of shame. Well, this is our final podcast of 2021. We'll be back on January the 6th. So without further ado, without much ado, without Sean Bailey's Christmas do, let's get to the guests. It's always a pleasure to welcome somebody who's really outspoken, worked for the Daily Mirror, and he's hosted Good Morning Britain. Oh, no, thank God it's not him. It's not the one you were thinking of. Instead, it's our editor-at-large. It's Alistair Campbell. Okay, Alistair Campbell, tell me about things that have delighted you the most in 2021. Uh, cold water swimming. Oh. Yeah. I mean, this is my second full winter but it's the first where I've actually really enjoyed it. Last year was sort of more kind of tolerating and getting used to it. Uh, But this year I've literally every day woken up and thought, I can't wait to get in the water. And this is this accomplished in the, in the ponds of Hampstead Heath, the Lido of Hampstead Heath, the Lido of Hampstead Heath. All right. I know where we're talking about um, (laughs) Parliament Hill Lido. I'm I'm, I'm guessing. No, it's very, very... Um, so I'd, I'd say that. Um, is there a shrinkage factor? Oh, do you mean... Are you talking private parts? Well, very much so, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it slightly worries me, actually, that, you know, all the blokes in the showers, obviously, probably think that I'm this kind of rough, tough bloke, but, you know, they don't see, they don't see me at my finest when it's three degrees in the water. 
<laughs> That's the coldest this year so far, three degrees. I, I wrote about this in the in the paper a few weeks ago about one of the things that brought me real joy was getting sent an ABBA Christmas jumper by ABBA. That was just awesome that they heard that I was a bit of a fan and through the post comes an ABBA Christmas jumper. I mean, you can't say no to that, can you? And what about your cultural highlights of the year? Because I know, I mean, we'll be talking about some of mine later on in this podcast, which will bore everybody. But I do know that you watched the the first episode of Succession with a with, with Brian Cox, and then you met Brian Cox afterwards. What what about other things that that and other things that have delighted you on TV and elsewhere? We just finished Succession last night, actually. Um, it's amazing, isn't it? It is. Now, and and, and I've, I've known Brian Cox for a long time, actually, because back in the day, when I was working for the Labour Party in opposition, so a long time ago, Brian used to do the voiceover for some of our election broadcasts. Uh, that was before he kind of defected to the SNP. And then, of course, he got very involved in the People's Vote campaign as well. So I've, I've, I know Brian well, and he's a... What's really interesting about the way Succession has gone, I mean, Brian is a very well-known actor and a very, very good actor, but Succession has taken him into a, in terms of his fame, taken him, I think, to a different, a completely different league. I also, by the way, at the, at the premiere, where we saw the first two hours of this series, and Jesse Armstrong, the creator, was there, and he came over to me and he said... Um, you don't remember me, do you? I said, oh, God, you know, well, of course I know who you are. I mean, you, you know, you're a great writer. He said, no, you don't remember me, do you? And I thought, oh, my God, what, where, where's this guy figured in my, in my life? He said, I was, uh, I kind of worked for you in the past. And he was a, an advisor, special advisor to Doug Henderson, the Labour MP, when we were in opposition. Oh, my goodness. And Fiona, my missus, was there, and she said, uh, oh, yeah, well, I think you made the right career choice. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's. Um, I'll tell you what. The 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 best thing I've seen on telly recently, apart from Succession, is the Beatles documentary, which yes. I think I've mentioned. I've mentioned now. I think in the last two columns I've written. I'm I, look. I I, I I was I wasn't a sort of massive Beatles fan when I was a kid and when I was growing up, but I've always been absolutely f- obsessed and fascinated by the phenomena phenomenon of the Beatles. And I've become much more of a an appreciator of their of their music. And this Peter Jackson documentary series, and I've been amazed how many people, aren't, when I've mentioned it, aren't even aware of it. It's one of the most extraordinary things I think I've ever seen on on telly. You know, they discovered the sixty hours of footage and one hundred and fifty hours of audio of when they were making what became, you know, their kind of pre breakup album, as it were. And it's just absolutely mesmerising to watch the four of them interacting, particularly to watch Paul McCartney and the creative process and what it's like. And because everybody knows the songs so well now, when you're watching him and George and John, and there's one bit where Paul's telling Ringo how he wants the drums played mm-hmm. at a certain point of the song, but something like Get Back or Long and Winding Road, there are points where they're, they're kind of slightly changing the tune and he's saying, is that a C or is that a G? Do you think you need an E on top of that? And, and then they change the lyrics. It's, it's absolutely, it's, it's, it, so I think that's been one of my favourite things. It's really great, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a shame in some ways that it's not, that the songs aren't better because it's clearly, you know, one of their weaker 
collections of songs for various reasons. Well, um, some of the, I think some of, some of them would, you know, Get Back and Long and Winding Road. And I've never been able to abide the Long and Winding Road, but Get Back and the the, the bit where you where you watch the, him basically conjure up Get Back out of thin air is is incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I, I think some of the George Harrison stuff, although I think George came over as a bit kind of needy and a bit moany, you can see that sort of frustration raging because he thinks he is, a, like it's everybody talks about Lennon and McCartney, and yet George is trying to write and is writing some really great songs, which then, of course, you know, some of them go in the album, some of them develop into stuff that he does on his own later. I found the whole Yoko Ono thing extraordinary as well, that, she literally just most of the time was literally just sitting there next to John. It's just a thing that goes on there. I'm, and I kept saying, if you had a, God, it'd be weird if everybody took their missus to work and they just sat next to them all day. Um, I do like, I particularly like the bit where she joins the Beatles after George packs up and says, see you around the clubs. Oh, <laughs> and there's, and God, then there's yeah. five minutes of wailing. Oh, the screaming, honestly, what's that about? It's good. I, I, I enjoyed that very, very much. Mm. What, what about things that have, have really got your goat this year? Well, the thing that gets my goat every single day is the wretched government. I mean, they really do get my goat. I've just been, you know... I mean, I, I don't know. I sometimes worry if I go over the top about it, but then I think the rational part of me kicks in. I think, no, they are truly dreadful people. So I think that gets my goat, the fact that we've got such a terrible government. Are, um, they, worse, are they worse than Mrs Thatcher's government? Oh. In, in full mid-1980s horror mode? Yes, I think so, because whatever, you know, Mrs Thatcher didn't... She wasn't pretending to be something she wasn't. Mm. You know, this lot... I actually found myself quoting Thatcher the other day because she, she once said something about, you know, once government starts to question whether it's above the law, then you you put at risk your home, your liberty and life itself. Well, that's what we now have. I thought, you know, just, just the last few days before the Christmas break, you know, Dominic Raab, let's kick out the human rights thing. Let's bring in new new measures that will put minister, allow ministers to, to you know, basically say that judges are wrong. Mm. Um, some of the some of the policing stuff and the anti-protest stuff that went through and the immigration the citizenship that when stuff went through just as there was the whole fuss about about parties and so forth no i think you'd, i think we're dealing with i think johnson still gets away with the notion less so but he still gets away with the notion that he's a bit of a joke and a bit of a clown but i think he's a real and present danger to things that actually this country is meant to be about like the rule of law like fairness, like uh, people understanding that you need institutional power as well as political power. I think these things are all at risk. Yes, that is very, very dangerous. I mean, you've written a lot about them this year. Is there, is there one thing that you've written about for us that, that, that particularly sticks out? Obviously, the, the, the mention of the, you know, your, your acronym for standards is something that you've kept coming back to throughout the year. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to, <laughs> the, the, when you actually go on the government website and you, you read the list of government, uh, of the Nolan principles, they're actually ordered differently. Yes. But I reordered them because I wanted to try to create a word and I wanted the word, I actually set myself a little target at the start of last year. I wanted the word Husial to start to get used in normal political discourse. Well, I failed in that. However, 
the seven things that it represents, honesty, openness, objectivity, selflessness, integrity, accountability, and leadership, they have become much more central in the debate. Now, I'm not taking credit for that. I think Johnson should take the credit for that because he's the one who, you know, regularly and consistently uh, operates without any regard to them. Um, but I do think that is when you boil down what's happened in recent weeks, probably starting with the Owen Patterson stuff and Johnson trying to rig the rules there, then into the whole thing about Christmas parties. I think it is actually, it's about people, even without the help of the media, who, who tend not to join up the dots on these things. I think actually people have started to join the dots. So it's not just about a Christmas party. It's people then remembering, oh, yeah, they spent all that money on contracting and COVID and they completely balls it up, but all the Tory donors got the money. I think people start to join the dots up. And I yeah. think that's what people are feeling. I mean, I, my sense is that, you know, you've got to be careful because there are still people, I still bump into people who say, you know, I think Johnson's fine and I think you're all too hard on him, blah, blah, blah. You meet some people like that. But I've noticed more and more people who are actually not just angry, but actually repelled and revolted by him. Now, Mrs. Thatcher, you mentioned Thatcher. There were people who were repelled and revolted by Thatcher, but it was very much about policy. It was about what she was doing on policy. I think with Johnson, this thing about, about lying and dissembling and not being straight with people, I think that really has cut through to people. And the reason why the Christmas party thing ultimately spoke to people was because it comes on the back of this growing sense and and also the Labour Party attacking on this 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 idea of you know one rule for them one rule for us and it's true it's true they do operate like they're above the law it's very true I also enjoyed your use of the word sado-populism this year I think you did you coin that one or was that somebody else coined it that um, was Timothy Snyder who's a, a an American historian um and it was actually, this is, it was actually a reader who sent me a speech that he'd written and said, look, you know, the stuff you talk about, you know, about what this lot are up to, you need to read this guy. And I actually, I did a big speech in Germany this year, which was all about this theory of sado-populism, which actually, it sounds crazy. The, the theory is that Snyder's argument is, if you think, you talk about populism, what we generally mean by populism is that's politicians who say and do things that they think are going to appeal to people. But when it comes to policy, that's about improving their lives. But sado-populism is actually putting that, giving that second place to how you make people feel and how you make people angry and fearful and hateful and resentful. And you build up this reservoir of loathing and resentment and you direct it then against others. So that if you take something like overseas aid, right, this government go on about world beating. Well, we used to be world beating on overseas aid and development. Mm. This lot break their manifesto, cut it from 0.7% of GDP to 0.5, pretend that they're going to restore it in the future, which they're not. And basically what that's about, it's not, it's not really, they're not thinking about the consequences of that in terms of real impact upon real lives of some of the poorest people in the poorest parts of the world. They're thinking about that as a message to send to people here that makes them feel, well, you know, my life may be pretty crap, but it's not as bad as that lot. And likewise, I think, you know, the reason why Trump, he's the ultimate sado-populist in many ways, you know, he, he using race and discrimination as, as, a, as a lever in that is, 
you know, it's very, very powerful politically. And if you're unscrupulous, you don't mind the fact that you do it and it's making people poorer and it's making making the country worse off. Brexit, I would say, is a sado-populist classic. Mm. It was an elite winning the support of the people by telling them lies that their lives would improve as a result of something happening when, in fact, their lives have been made worse. Yes, this is true. I've got another phrase for you before we before we move on, actually, which is which some, somebody told me the other day that they um, they encountered a senior uh, member of the David Cameron government at a, a drinks party recently. And um, he said to them, what do you think this government, this current government will be remembered for? And, and, and my friend said, well, corruption. And he said, well, that's a very strong word, isn't it? And, and, and my, my friend said to him, well, you know, cronyism, the, 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 the PPE, the, you know, the, the donations, now all of this stuff with the, the police and the, the party and, and, you know, doing stuff behind people's backs. Um, and he said, and, and, and the, the minister, the high-ranking minister in David Cameron's government said, yes, I, I suppose you're right. It's, mm. it's soft corruption. <laughs> so it's a government known for soft corruption and sado-populism. Do you think that the... We've, have we got closer to rejoining the EU or further away this year? Oh, I think it's very hard to answer that. Um, I think there is still within the country a kind of... Fatigue is the wrong word, but a kind of... It's almost like it, it, it's something that's happening away from us. Um, now, people like you and me... We kind of, of course, we're writing about it all the time and we're looking at the consequences of it all the time. I think we're too close to it at times. I was surprised re- recently at was an event where it was, you know, there were quite a few people there who were really passionate about Brexit at the time, went on all the People's Vote marches, subscribed to the New European, all that stuff. And I was surprised the extent to which they said, look, I think sometimes you just got to accept that the ship has sailed. Now, I th- the only thing I would say to that, and it's what I said to them, is that right now, because the government, as per Rees Mogg in the Commons this week, as per, you know, Labour still not really wanting to talk about it, you've got politics essentially has turned its back on it. And as that's the case, and because, you know, the media has turned its back other than the occasional reporting of Article 16, another stupid, ridiculous speech by Frost or whatever. But bit by bit by bit, I, I mentioned the phrase joining the dots earlier. I think people over time will join dots sufficient, certainly, to say the current arrangements aren't working and we have to have a government that is at least going to look at how they can be fixed or whether that takes you, I don't know, back to some sort of single market customs union arrangement. I just don't know. But, you know, political will at the moment, I just don't think is there. And um, that's a long-winded way of saying, I think we've stalled. Yes, it seems a long way away, doesn't it? A long way off. What are your, what are your, your best hopes for 2022? What, you, what do you feel hopeful about? Well, there's a difference between feeling hopeful and feeling confident. Hmm. Um, look, I think, I think we've made, look, when I say we, those of us who have a genuine worry that this is a very dangerous government with a very dangerous prime minister um, and a very dangerous cabinet. I think we have made a lot of progress in that argument. 
I hope that 2022, I think it's entirely possible Johnson will be gone. Uh, my worry then is actually they get somebody just as bad, but in different ways. Because you've got to remember that one of the great cons of the last decade, this lot have been in power now for 11 years. The country has, to my mind, made very, very little progress. And that was happening long before COVID. So, you know, I, I just, I hope that, I hope people start to get a bit angrier than they've been. I hope that people start to get more active and more engaged. I still feel the population's very becalmed, mm, yeah. very baffling. What, you get a lot of anger. You get people, you, 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 I mean, loads of people are very, very angry. And if you think about it, we, we were having, we were organising marches for the People's Vote campaign. We're getting a million people on the streets. Where's mm. it all gone? Where's that all gone? I, I was thinking the other day, if you tried to get, uh, you know, people out in the streets at the moment, when actually I think there is a, there is a real need for it in terms of, you know, the, the bad stuff that's being done by the government. Um, I just think they, they, there's a sort of sense of people being becalmed. Now, that can't last forever. It cannot last forever. So what your, what, what's your worst fears, then, for, for 2022? Oh, they, they, they keep getting away with it. Um, mm. They keep getting away with it. That Those who do feel angry just kind of think, well, there's nothing we do, give up. Yeah, that's my worst fear. And I, and, and, and I think that, look, my worst fear long term, this could be, Look, I, I don't know if I'm right or I'm wrong about this. I really think if Johnson gets another full term, I think this country is going to be damaged irreparably. Yes. Uh, weakened irreparably for a very, very long time. I really think that. So, you know, what you'd have if they get away with it for another year is a big step towards that. Now, Labour have done better. I think the reshuffle was you know, pretty good. Mm. Uh, I think Keir Starmer's performance in the Commons has been better. But the fact that Labour, with all the really bad stuff that's gone on, are still just kind of a few points ahead in the polls. You know, they, they really, really still, I think, have a long way to go before the country's going to say, yeah, do you know what, we'll have you back. I tell you, we had an interesting letter, and it's in, it's in our Christmas special um, about hopes and, well, hope, talking of hopes and fears, and it, it was, I, I, can't, I haven't got the, uh, the I think it was a, a, a guy, I haven't got his name in front of me, but he said, you know, he, his fear is that they get rid of Johnson, and as you said, they put somebody else in, and, you know, they, 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 they win again, and they continue to, to do damage, and he, he, his his phrase again. I can't quite remember what the, his actual phrasing was, but I think he said Johnson is the is just a symptom of the the sickness. Oh yeah, is this well, look, conservative party. Well, look, look at what happened in that vote on the on, yes. the on the COVID measures. You got Johnson, who's probably the most libertarian prime minister we've ever had, being attacked roundly by a large part of part his party for not being libertarian enough. And some of those, I mean, I had to turn it off in the end when he had those people like Desmond Swain coming out with the utter drivel that they did. No, listen, the Conservative Party is the problem. And Johnson has been the leader of it at a time when he was seen, rightly, in that he won, as the person who could win them an election. And he was seen, rightly, as it turned out, by the Brexit side as the person who could lead them to, to win in that. Now, I think they're beginning to see that the country is tiring of him, but they keep pulling this trick off and, you know, they get away with it 
partly because Labour let them get away with it in the past. Hmm. Um, you know, they, they keep changing leader and it's sort of, you know, they create this mirage that somehow it's a change of government. Yeah, that's why Labour mustn't pin everything on Johnson. It's actually it's about a lot of them. Every single person who sits in that cabinet table has got to be pinned. So as that if and when Johnson does fall, it's just not simple as Sunak saying, right, I'll slide in and take the job. Trust, I'll slide in and take the job. Patel, whoever it might be. Mm. Um, and by the way, I wrote about this this, this week. I, honestly, new European readers who are interested in things like foreign policy, please do read Liz Truss's Chatham House speech. It's the worst. It's unbelievable. Uh, honestly, it's like she won a competition to be foreign secretary for a day and make a speech. It reads like a really bad GCSE essay. She's the foreign secretary. It's terrifying. It's incredible. It's incredible. And let's let's finish then with with a, a bold prediction from you for 2022. Oh my God, uh, Man City will win the league. Well, that's music to my ears. <laughs> I'm not sure about anybody anybody else's. I still think Liverpool will win the league, but then I always think we won't win it until we until we do win it. Yeah, well, I, I guess I'm speaking in the wake of having watched them against Leeds, which was pretty ridiculous. Uh, I'm, 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 I must confess, on the football front, I'm a little bit worried about Burnley. Yes. But apart from that, I don't know, really. Um, God, I just don't know. I feel I, I do. I don't I can't remember the last time I felt so pessimistic about the state of the country and the direction of the country. And in the end, it is about Labour. Labour's got to, you know. People keep saying, well, we've got to change the electoral system. Well, you're not going to change the electoral system for an election. It's no, just it's not going to happen. So you've got to decide, you know, and Labour's got to decide as well. You know, the, everybody should be focused on how do we get rid of this? It's the worst government, worst prime minister we've ever had. They've got to go. So, you know, my prediction is there'll be more activism and more agitation, but I could be wrong. Yeah, local elections in May will be very interesting, I think. Very interesting. I wonder who the Prime Minister will be bef directly before and directly after that. would be interesting. Um, mm. Alistair Campbell, thank you. What a treat it's been to, uh, to have you with us uh, all through 2021 and, and uh, it will be great speaking again in 2022. Thank you. Pleasure. Alistair Campbell there. And before we do go to our next guest, I wanted to recommend some stuff I liked in 2021. I'm always interested, by the way, to find out what you're reading or watching or listening to. Please let me know on Twitter what you've liked in 2021. Um, what stuff did I like? I like, watched a lot of TV in 2021, probably too much TV. Uh, Succession, obviously, we spoke about with Alistair Small Axe. I loved, especially the Lovers Rock one. I liked Scenes from a Marriage. I liked Only Murders in the Building. I liked The White Lotus. I loved Made with Margaret Qualley. Uh, the thing I enjoyed most on TV, I think, was probably Mayor of Easttown. Um, music, um, favourite records of the year. I loved Promises by Pharaoh Sanders, Floating Points and the LSO. Uh, I loved Daddy's Home by St Vincent. The songs I listened to the most were uh, Shays Long by Wet Leg. I think everyone's been listening to that. Uh, and Rodriguez for a Night by David Crosby, written by Donald Fagan from Steely Dan. I went to some great gigs this year, not enough gigs. Uh, Stereo Lab in Manchester, Scritti Politi I saw in Norwich, what great voice he's still got. And uh, Matthew Halsall, the um, great jazz, jazz trumpeter um, in Nottingham, I saw recently, uh, which was wonderful. 
Um, the films I liked, I loved Nomadland, I loved Sound of Metal, I watched uh, Riz Ahmed and um, Francis McDormand in, in anything. The most joyous experience I had in the cinema this year was Summer of Soul, um, which if you've not seen it, will uh, it will lift you up uh, no matter how dark things are. Uh, and the books that I liked most this year were um, A Dream Girl by Laura Lipman, A Man Named Doll by Jonathan Ames, Razorblade, Tears by S.A. Cosby, and uh, I think my favourite book this year was The Night Always Comes by Willie Vlorton. It was really great. And the non-fiction book that I like the most uh, is by Ricky Lee Jones, the singer. It's called The Last Chance Texaco. It's, it will be one of the, the, the best music autobiographies you'll have ever read. Um, so check some of that out. And now our second guest uh, is my new European colleague, a uh, uh, wonderful signing for us in 2021. It's Claire Nihanila. So before we talk about your highlights and lowlights of the year, Clara, in our holiday issue that's out now, you've compiled with, with Sooner Erdem a, a list of people to watch in 2022. Give us some, give, a, give me a couple of names in there who you're expecting that we'll all have to get to know better in 2022. Yes, well, it spreads across the world, but closest to home, I would say, obviously, um, Liz Truss is one of them. Um, maybe not for good reasons, but she's definitely someone to watch um, because she is being touted as a possible successor to, to Boris Johnson if he ever goes. In France, across the water, we've got elections next year. So one of the people we focused on was Valérie Piquet, who could be the first female president. I mean, there's a lot of water between here and there, but interestingly, she's been chosen for the Les Républicains, which is the uh, centre-right party of Jacques Chirac and Nicolas Sarkozy. And she's their first female candidate. And while she's polling at the moment behind Emmanuel Macron and the other two contenders, Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmour, who are both far right, she, her, her polling numbers are rising. And recently a poll came out saying, that if she gets to the second round, because there's two rounds in the election, mm. she could actually beat Emmanuel Macron. There's a long way to go to there, as I said, but you know they're putting it at a 52-48 chance of her doing that. So you know that's very interesting because essentially the question is whether she can gain some of those more middle ground voters who previously went to Macron, and also maybe some more of the more moderate people who would have been going to Marine Le Pen or Eric Zemmour. Yes, that's right. I mean, the, the the theory is we've talked about it here before that the theory is that they, you know, they that Marine, Marine Le Pen and Zamor might cancel each other out and let her through, and then uh, and then she takes on uh, Macron. So um, so that's really uh, that's really interesting. America, I know we focused on Stacey Abrams, didn't we? Is there any is there anyone else you want to? Uh, talk about it's a fantastic piece this by the way in the, in the new european you really if you've not got a copy yet you really must available all good newsstands now i would say i mean one of the people i find interesting is the researches of uh, luis ignacio lula da silva the former president of brazil obviously you know um, the presidency of uh, jair bolsonaro has been disastrous for brazil on so many levels um he's the you know to, to quote uh, someone talking about our leader he's possibly the worst 
president at the worst time mm. because he has not managed the pandemic well. You know, the, the death rate has been appalling, but he's also um, failed to manage the economy. He's failed to manage the incredible environmental resources of Brazil. So the fact that uh, Lula is coming back and although he hasn't declared his candidacy yet, I don't think it's pretty obvious that he is going to stand against him. And, you know, already people are flocking to support him because, frankly, anything is better than Bolsonaro. And the interesting thing is he still has a lot of popularity in Brazil, despite the fact that he was jailed briefly for corruption, which he, of course, said was politically motivated. But I think that could be a very interesting election in October next year. If only we lived in a place where people were jailed <laughs> for political corruption. That's all I'm going to say. Um, let's let's turn to, to what you made of this year and what your what, what your hopes and fears are for, for next year. What what are the things that have delighted you the most in 2021? I, I, I thought this might be a trick question at the beginning, but I did think of some that delighted me. Some of them are very trivial. Um, but one of the more important things, I think, is uh, the rollout in October of a vaccine for malaria across the world. I think this is such an important development. I lived in Africa for 10 years and you see daily the toll of malaria on both people and the economy. It, it kills people, it makes them weak, it makes them unable to work. So the idea that there will now be a vaccine to prevent the more than 600,000 deaths that you get every year from malaria, 96% of those are in Africa. I think that's a great thing. Another thing that cheered me was uh, the resignation of Matt Hancock, which I'm sure cheered quite a lot of people, probably some people in the government as well, given what we heard about his performance. And um, on a more uh, sort of silly note, um, one of my highlights in a bleak year was the way that Iceland trolled Marcus Zuckerberg after he um, presented his new metaverse and the change of Facebook to Meta. I don't know if you've seen the video, it's well worth checking out. And um, the presenter dresses as Mark Zuckerberg and tells people that they have a new plan to connect our world without being super weird. It's well worth checking out. And what, any cultural highlights of the year? Cultural highlights. I mean, I'm not up on my reading despite being an author, but yes, one you are an author. <laughs> I haven't had so much time, so I haven't read the most recent books, but one of my highlights of the year was Hanya Yanihara's um, A Little Life, which I read and just totally enjoyed. It's such a heartbreaking book. It's so beautifully written, and that would have been one of my highlights. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to get to the cinema very much for various reasons some of them obvious yes that's right what are the what are the things that you've written for us that you've been most proud of um i mean you, you you've only you've only been with us for two or three months now i think but, but is there something that stands out of the stuff that you've written i mean i think it has to be uh, the story on uh, richard Radcliffe and yes. his hunger strike um in to 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 force the government to bring his wife Nazanin Zagari Radcliffe back from Iran where she's been held for five years and is facing another year in jail. It was such a privilege to meet him. He's such a humble man. Um, I can't believe the courage and just the endurance of the, the time he has had to deal with this uncertainty and with his wife being away. And also, you know, as a parent, how, how do you deal with that with your seven-year-old daughter? The, the, the moral strength of that is incredible. I was also privileged to speak um, at length to the family of Anusha Ashuri, who is another uh, British man, 67-year-old former engineer being held in Iran. 
And there is, of course, also Murad Tabas. He's another um, British citizen. He also has US uh, citizenship as well. All of the meat held on spurious charges. I am extremely hopeful that something can be done to get them back. There is movement. We know that UK officials have been in Iran talking about how they repaid the 400 million pound debt that is holding up their release. I mean, of course, uh, the, the the fact that Iran takes people as diplomatic hostages is unconscionable, but there mm. is also the separate fact that it, this debt is owed by Britain to Iran and needs to be paid. So I'm hopeful that a breakthrough can come in that. I think that would make 2022 a fantastic year just on its own. And I mean, the the the, the fact that these people, are, their future is so so uncertain, I guess, is, is something that has wound you up this year. Has, has there been anything, what else has really got your goat? <laughs> How long do you have? <laughs> I mean, one thing that both annoyed and delighted me was Dominic Cummings' testimony in May. And it, it seems like such it's a long time ago. in May. <laughs> so, much, so much has happened since then. It's almost like, you know, we've, we've, we've gone several layers deeper into the barrel. But, you know, to have somebody pull back the curtain on the government and show just how callous, inconsiderate, incompetent they are, even though I think a lot of people suspected that already. And with the caveat, of course, that this is someone who is, you know, getting his own measure of revenge. It, it was extraordinary. I watched almost the whole thing and I simply could not believe what it exposed. Um, so it was both annoying, but also there is always something of pleasure to be found in being proved right <laughs> mm. and seeing that what you suspect is true. And I think that was one of the things. Some of the other things, I mean, the, 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 the decision to end the uplift on universal credit of £20, I think, is it was something that really annoyed me and um, not least because you ju juxtapose it with the other priorities of the government and the sleaze allegations the knowledge that Owen Patterson was lobbying for £110,000 a year and then you're taking £20 off people who really just can't afford it. That I found extremely annoying and again on that note you know £200 million for a new ship of state Yes. I'm sorry. Um, you know, and, and again, that announcement encapsulated everything that annoys me. Um, first vessel of its kind. It's going to be, you know, representing the burgeoning status of a great independent maritime trading nation. It's again that kind of boosterism that the government employs to almost build a fantasy world that they expect us to step into like through the back of the cupboard in Narnia. <laughs> uh, Dominic Cummings, obviously one of the, the architects of, of Vote Leave, the brain of Vote Leave. Have we got closer to rejoining the EU this year or have we got even further away from rejoining the EU? I mean, I think it's a bit like a relationship, you know, it's like for the first couple of months, you're always checking on Facebook to see what they're up to. And I think Britain in this is the one that's not quite sure. And they, they want to be making a big show of how good their life is. So, you know, there's lots of fun pictures. And the EU is basically kind of moving away and not interested anymore. But I did think it's interesting. That I think the kids are not so happy in this, in this divorce because a recent uh, study by the European Council on Foreign Relations found 
some interesting um, numbers that 39% of people in Britain blame the UK for bad relations and 38% blame the EU. And it refers to the fact that the British government needs perennial um, fights of a kind of permanent Brexit, whereas the people don't really want that anymore. And the survey also found that 39% believe that the EU is a key partner compared to 22% for the US. So while I do think we're moving further away from the EU on an institutional governmental level, I think the scales are maybe falling off people's eyes in terms of what it means to their lives. I mean, obviously, you know, all the rows, the fishing row, the, the silly contretemps about the letter that uh, yes. was mistranslated, um, Johnson's uh, decision to put on Twitter his letter to Macron before he sent it to Macron, which called Macron to say he was not serious, which is much more of an insult in French. <laughs> and, you know, so I, I think we aren't any closer to the EU now with this government in charge, and I'm not sure we can be. The fact that they continuously brandish the Democles sword of Article 16 over the relationship, I mean, that can't be positive. It can't lead to trust because the very, at the heart of that whole argument is a British failure to, to, to respect what it signed. So, I don't think the outlook is good while this government is in charge, but what I do think is interesting is this slow realization perhaps um, among the British people that perhaps this isn't the smartest move or it, maybe not the smartest move, but it's just not bringing the benefits they were promised. That's right. Yes. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's uh, the, the hope, I guess, is that uh, the hope is that we, we get closer to a general election and, and we get, get closer to the moment when these people uh, can be voted out of power, whether they will be voted out of power is another, another matter. And, and when we're talking about hopes, what, what are your big hopes for 2022? Well, I think, you know, one of my big hopes is that um, what you just referred to <laughs> and the fact that maybe Boris Johnson could find a conscience under the Christmas tree. And um, I would like to see perhaps a little bit more stringent opposition from the Labour Party. I think we need to rebalance this relationship a little bit. Um, I already mentioned the British uh, citizens held in Iran, but obviously the other, I mean, you can't ignore the Omicron uh, issue here now. I mean, as anyone, I hope that data will eventually show that this is less serious because the consequences otherwise are quite dire. As a parent, we're already wondering if our children are going back to school after the Christmas holidays. I do hope that we don't have a similar catastrophe to last year where schools were kept open before Christmas and then they were shut in January. Mm. And then we had the catastrophe of the uh, results and exam cancellations. Uh, my daughter is doing A-levels this uh, summer. So one of my hopes is that she gets to do them. She has not done a serious exam in school yet. She is one of the cohorts who missed her GCSEs. So, you know, I am hoping that we can somehow move to a more stable footing um, while living with this coronavirus. Of course, competency, competency in government is quite important for that. What are you worried about in 2022, apart from everything else that we've just talked about? What are your fears? Apart from everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, I am worried um, 
uh, and on on about the sort of authoritarian drift you're seeing in the UK. Um, I think it's the combination of the nationality and borders bill, the policing bill, and this new idea that they're going to reform mm. human rights laws. I mean, we get carried away by these these stories about parties and Christmas jumpers and whether cheese and wine is a party or, you know, do you have to have hot food in a buffet? It's quite important in the sense that it goes to honesty. But there are other things, I think, happening behind the scenes which threaten the democracy on a greater level. Um, and these bills are some of them, uh, you know, there is a crackdown. There's the, the police crime and sentencing a court bill does contain some quite um, aggressive measures against protests. And I think, you know, thinking back to Tim Walker's wonderful interview with uh, Kenneth Clark in The New European, you know, he just said this government was more right wing and nationalist than anyone before and warned of the danger of drifting into an elected dictatorship. And I think we do see that um, in, in the legislation, in the, if you like, less headline grabbing moves that they're up to. Um, the other thing I'm worried about, and I, I, I'm always worried about this, is climate change. Um, I think, you know, we saw what happened with the tornadoes in Kentucky. It's always difficult mm. to draw a direct line between climate uh, change and individual weather events. However, that has never happened before. We have a terrible drought in um, Eastern Africa. There is a heartbreaking picture um, doing the rounds on Twitter, and uh, I think it's from the BBC of these six giraffes which died, who died of uh, thirst in northern Kenya. There are two point, over two million people who are in danger of hunger because there just hasn't been any rain. And I'm just picking that region of the world because I know it, but there are floods um, in South Sudan. There are floods in Asia. You know, this is a problem that is getting worse and I'm not sure we have the leaders in place to deal with it in the way they need to and it worries me that we are becoming inured to the stories even the tornado story I mean it's almost like we're accepting it now so I'm worried about those events continuing and our growing acceptance of them. And let's end with a bold prediction for 2022. <laughs> Well, I should caveat this by saying that my children have still not forgiven us for not being able to protect the Brexit vote or indeed Trump's election. So <laughs> we have no standing whatsoever anymore. But if I was to really go out on a limb, I would, I would maybe bet on Pickfest, certainly making the second round and possibly even defeating Macron. I do think Boris Johnson might leave office. I'm not sure how that happens, but I feel that he might. And then a really wild one, the World Cup is on in Qatar at the end of the year. <laughs> and I'm going to say Ukraine and Argentina could be in the finals because, you know. Wow. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Bold predict three bold predictions. <laughs> that's uh, that's wonderful. That's Klarni Hanila from the New European. You'll be hearing and reading a lot more from her in 2022. Now, before our final guest, I am going to read you a poem what I wrote in our Sunlit Uplands column, which details how well Brexit is going, and spoilers, it isn't going very well, is it? Um, I hope this poem goes better than that. Uh, rave reviews I've had for it so far include So Bad It's Good, 
so bad it's bad. And uh, somebody on Twitter said, Keats it ain't, to which uh, I have to reply, Pam airs it ain't, never mind Keats. Uh, but I've tried very hard to make it rhyme and everything. So, so here it is. We're almost 12 months since the end of transition and Brexit still looks like a suicide mission. A shortage of this thing, more red tape for that. And it's no laughing matter unless your name's Stratton. No sign of fruit pickers, no drivers for lorries. Less bar staff for liquors, but more Nadine Dorries. An absence of nurses to give the sick suchers. A dearth of meat workers, so we can't have a butcher's. Our jabs may have made us less sickened and peaky, but with no Nando's chicken, our food was less cheeky. So what's been the cause of this terrible mess? You won't find the answer in the Daily Express. But when we voted leave, a lot of folks left, which explains why some businesses feel so bereft. More gaps on the shelves at the big supermarket. Less workers who sound like Bahar's Morton Harkett. They sodded off home to the good old EU, leaving us with the jobs that we don't want to do. And instead of solutions, the PM tells stories. Who'd have thought his worst party would not be the Tories? He shafted the farmers and the fishers in boats. They're no longer needed now he's had their votes. And if there's good in the protocol, he simply can't find it. Well, he must have been drinking pure alcohol when he signed it. Though the polls might be moving in the right direction, there's still nearly three years till the next general election. So though it's not festive to end sounding doomy, the forecast for the uplands is not sunlit, but gloomy. Now, our final guest is New European Foreign Editor John Kampfner, another excellent signing for us in 2021. John, let's start with the things that have delighted you the most in 2021. The fact that Boris Johnson has been found out for the clown and the crook that we all know that he's always been. That's my numbers one to ten, Steve. <laughs> it's like Christmas has come early for people like you and me. Well, it's come early, but it's also come incredibly late, to be honest. And the thing that always winds me up about people, I actually don't mind people who somehow are still believers um, whether they're ideological believers or whether they take the view that somehow it's a good way to to conduct politics, that's up for them. It's almost like the the Brexit ultras. I mean, I'm so old. I remember all the rebels uh, who were kicking up rough under John Major's mm. government. And to give them their due, and I don't normally do this, they at least have the merit of consistency. They've always believed in this rural Britannia, small island stuff, and they haven't changed their views and they haven't done it in order to be successful or ambitious. The people that really wind me up are the latter-day Remainers who have become more Catholic than the Pope in terms of their enthusiasm for leave, the ambitious charlatans who never believed a word of it, people like Johnson, but also the people, and there's so many of them, I'm sure you know them, I've got them, who sort of say, oh, it's not so bad, Johnson's a lovable rogue. They use mm. the first, the first, uh, his first name, which always winds me up. You know, I would never have said Margaret when it came to Maggie Thatcher. Uh, you know, so, so why do you say Boris? I mean, I just find it ridiculous, but it's almost that sense that there's something sort of endearingly charming and British and eccentric 
about him rather than a reflection that this is the extent to which the country has declined as a serious country. But that's the end of my of my pre-Christmas whinge, Steve. Let's 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 think about um, let's think about happier things, maybe. Well, I enjoyed that. Was uh, was you're you're a you're a man of great culture, John. Um, what's what have been your your cultural things, your highlights of the year culturally? Uh, Chelsea winning the Champions League. Well, that was let's let's gloss over that now. That was a that was a a cultural fest. Um, well, I suppose this has been such a year of box sets. Um, then uh, you know it had to be all the ones that we we have all devoured. The Rupert Murdoch show on Netflix, otherwise known as Succession, uh, has absolutely gripped. I've been to the theatre a few times, but I must say that what happened, I think, in the autumn when everybody was was back at the theatre was that the bar was deliberately, maybe it was just a, a psychological tick, the bar was deliberately lowered, I think, because everybody was so excited, as they should be, uh, to be back in live performance. And I saw a couple of performances that really, I thought, were below par. One, which was Bach and Sons at the Bridge Theatre, the, the not-so-new but still-new Bridge Theatre, was so bad, in my view, even though it stars Simon Russell Beale, who I have enormous admiration for, that I was almost tempted to leave halfway. But then I thought, hold on a second, I've waited nine months to go to the theatre. There's no point in leaving halfway through. That's, uh, yes, that's the, at, least you got your, at least you got your money's worth. Uh, I got my fix, yeah, absolutely. You got your, yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, Tim Walker was was uh, slating Manor, which is on at the National at the moment. Uh, mm. I don't know whether you've uh, you've had the pleasure to come across that one. That's got uh, that's got in the, the man from Endeavour and Vigil in it, Sean Evans. Um, no, the, and the other one that I was really uh, disappointed with, and I so desperately didn't want to be disappointed with it, was Leopoldstadt. Um, now, I've always absolutely uh, adored Stoppard. And uh, in fact, I remember uh, we had tickets for one of its earliest performances in March 2020. Remember remember those days? Oh, and, and it was one of the very first cancellations I had to do. We were all trying to work out in those days what happens when you can't go to, to something. It was all such a sort of alien concept. And I eventually got to see it in September, I think it was, this year. Or was it in the summer? I can't remember. Anyway, it was when you were allowed to and everybody was still rather tentatively going around. There was a bit of distancing and mask and lots of mask wearing in the theatre and that sort of thing. And I must say, I thought it was, you know, I, I, I'm a Germany obsessive and I both the modern um, wonderful parts of Germany, but also the horrors of the past and the Nazi era. So I was fascinated to see this great autobiographical work taking us through from the late 19th century and the trajectory of Jews in, in Berlin and in Germany um, and, and, and the story and then the post-war story of people coming back on a sense of denial of identity and that sort of thing. But I just found it too reductive and simplistic. But I must say, I, I must have been in a very small minority. Although I did was talking to somebody last weekend who's actually a theatre reviewer and she was mighty relieved that I came to the same view as she did because she when she gave it I think only two stars 
she uh, said that she felt very much as if she was in a minority of one. Oh, I've been pandemics twice out of the theatre this uh, since we've been allowed to go back to the theatre. Yeah. So maybe I'll maybe I'll have more luck in in twenty twenty two. Of the things that you've written for for us this year, what's what are you what are you most proud of? Oh, it's all fish and chip wrapping. Not proud of anything. Journalism, you know what it is. Uh, no, of course not. I'm absolutely, and I think the at the risk of plugging Steve, I think the New European is on an absolute roll. I think it is playing an essential, plugging an, an essential gap, but that sounds too negative. It's playing an essential role in doing what other British newspapers used to do, but are somehow failing to do, which, and I think Brexit's got something to do with it, but not all, which is to relate Britain to Europe and relating Europe to Britain. And we and you, Steve, and, and plaudits to you, are doing it in a way that goes across immediate news to wider current affairs. Um, you know, I've been helping you commission things. And, you know, I love the sort of slightly more wacky things. It could be a piece about uh, the state of the Internet in Romania. It could be what Orban is up to in Hungary. Obviously, I've enjoyed the pieces I've written about Germany and things around Germany and um, Russia and the former Soviet space. Those sorts of things have always been my USP. Those are the two places that I started out in journalism as a foreign correspondent. But it's also the cultural aspects. It's also the the relating um, uh, cultural uh, aspects, whether... Uh, it's it's theatre in France. I, I was particularly I enjoyed helping commission a piece that was written from Paris about the the oligarchs, the French oligarchs, two main uh, the, the two new museums and galleries. One yes. right in the centre of Paris, the Bourse, the former um, stock market, and one not so new now in the Bois de Boulogne, the LVMH. Um, and it's uh, two titans of, of French and global bling fighting it out over, over art. And it's those sorts of things that I think people come to the New European now for. Yes, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. And just a just a travel update for listeners: if you want to go to uh, to visit either of those uh, great art galleries, uh, you can't. Um, <laughs> so. So uh, good luck in, in 2022. Um, what, what's annoyed you uh, most this year? Well, I won't go on about what I just did go on um, about. I What frightens me, which isn't answering your question, is the ongoing schism in the United States. And uh, I was talking to a very good friend of mine who's an American who lives in London, who works in tech. And I was saying why don't you go back to the States at some point? And he just said, I can't because the divisions that we see taking place in Britain over Brexit, which have not in any way healed in some ways, they've got deeper. You should replicate them in the United States, but multiply them many times over. And that sense now of two entirely different worldviews, both in my view, becoming more and more extreme, although I'm not in any way equating them. There's no moral equivalence between um, Trumpism and its anti-democratic, uh, horrific, cavalier, 
disregard for everything that is good about liberal democracy and the counter, which is this incredibly earnest, angry left liberalism. But you have two totally different mindsets. And I said to him, oh, it's just like the American Civil War. And he said, well, don't be glib about it because you know that could come. And when you look at the prospects of either Trump or somebody like Trump taking over, winning in 2024 and taking over again in January 2025, you, they've got now an absolutely embedded majority in the Supreme Court. There has been largely below the radar a removal of the governors general, the people in the different uh, the states, the state secretaries, as, as they're better known, the people who are in charge of the electoral process. Um, and so the prospect, if you add into that gerrymandering of electoral constituencies in favour of the Republicans that's been going on forever, long story short, the chances of an election in November 2024 being remotely free and fair and non-divisive are extremely low. The chances of the Democrats prevailing in that environment are low and Biden hasn't covered himself in glory either. So you've really got for Europe, um, for the Germans, for the French, for the Brits, for everybody, the prospect of a, a, a future American president who may well take America out of NATO, um, uh, a further ingratiation with Putin and Putin and Trump got on so well. It's a really, really uh, troubling uh, aspect. And if some, if there was some unifying force in America, because to be honest, everything that happens in Europe in the next few years will be eclipsed by what happens in the US elections in three years time. Yes, that's right. And I think we, you know, we, we spoke to Bonnie Greer on the podcast last week about yeah. this. Well, Bonnie's more hopeful that the Democrats that will uh, will prevail in 2024 than, than, than you are. I think we're all braced for a fairly brutal midterm election cycle for the Democrats. And Is um, Bonnie trying to get uh, Prince Charles to stand? She, I think she is, yeah. Well, Bonnie's view is that, is that, that, that Trump is, is unelectable and, um, and no matter how bad things get uh, in, in next November, um, in, by November 2024, um, he will be uh, he, he will be so so tarnished, uh, even more tarnished than he is now, uh, and that the, the people just will not vote for him. And I've, I've got a certain amount of um, sympathy with that view. But whether I should, I should some... try to drink some of Bonnie's Kool Aid, maybe there is that, somebody... that, will, that, will cheer, that will cheer me up. Maybe um, there's somebody younger and much worse <laughs> waiting <laughs> in the wings. Though you don't know. Um, and actually, I think the most exciting elections next year, it's not a particularly original point of view, is going to be the French yes. elections. And I am absolutely gripped because you have Macron, sort of Monsieur um, uh, Globalisation, and uh, entirely sort of, well, not Gaulist, more sort of Napoleonic in his sort of uh, imperiousness, Um at the same time, uh, we all thought that the runoff would be between him and either of the two far-right uh, candidates, uh, Eric Zemmour or Marine Le Pen, and Zemmour appeared to be moving into pole position. But now you have the intriguing prospect of Pécresse um, mm. and 
the centre-right, um, in which case you've got a, a classic sort of, I wouldn't put Macron centre-left at all, but a sort of centrist versus the centre-right. And she is absolutely fascinating, as, as described, um, one-third Thatcher, two-thirds Merkel. And um, it would be endlessly fascinating to see the extent to which she does take him on, or I, I, anti-post betting still has Macron as, as the favourite. Uh, yes, one of the people, our people of 2022 in the uh, in the New Europeans uh, Christmas issue. Um, please look out for that uh, mm. if you've not got one already. Um, I wrote this question thinking that people would say, well, because of Boris Johnson uh, and his low standing, current low standing, that we have got closer to rejoining the EU. But but people seem to be thinking that we are uh, moving further away. So so, what's your view? Have we got closer to rejoining or to a sensible relationship with the EU or, or have we moved even further away? Well, they're two quite different things. Um, rejoining, I would say, is hugely on the back burner yeah. because I just can't see, given that Starmer's whole shtick is that Brexit is over and, you know, yes. he has, you know, my Union Jack is, is bigger than your Union Jack type. Um, he did have a very big Union Jack. <laughs> I know, it's a sort of classic. Um, I mean, I'm not a great fan of these. Um, no. Easy, easy symbols, but... It reminded me a bit of when Morrissey brandished a Union Jack on stage in, um, I think, it, what was it, in Finsbury Park in, in the early 1990s. But anyway, yes. I digress. Or even, or even dare, we, dare we forget, the Spice Girls um, and, and that whole sort of reclaiming the Union Jack as, as sort of uh, cool Britannia, um, which was very endearing for its time, David Beckham and, and the Spice... It was also, it's such an age of innocence... Absolutely, that, that whole age. Beautiful. But cool I mean, Britannia, rule, exactly. And uh, cool Britannia had its moment. Now we're back to rule Britannia, or cruel um, Britannia, cruel Britannia. The so I don't think. And the other point that we always forget is classic British hubris. We think the Europeans would welcome us back with open arms. Uh-uh. Yes. That ain't going to happen in a hurry. Sort of, there is along with the sadness of us going. There is also no little relief that mm. that so much time was spent um, dealing with the British problem for years or decades. Now there's a Polish problem and a Hungarian problem, but they're still relatively small fry compared to the trouble that British prime ministers either looked to make or were almost forced to make, depending on. Uh, the particular era. But no, so I don't think Bre um, a return is anytime soon. Starmer's not going to do it. But whether, and this is where the succession to Johnson would be fascinating. Now, is that going to happen soon, very soon, in terms of letters to the 1922 committee and that sort of thing? Well, that's an element, there's a big element of time will tell on that. I tend to doubt it but you know anything can happen I don't I do think that there will be yet more crises and he will continue to stagger on if he makes it through another 12 months I think he'll get to the election this is my kind of real sort of you know pop uh, prediction time I think he would win the next election but with a reduced majority and I think he would go fairly shortly afterwards having done something to uh, cloak himself in the flag. Anyway, whoever it is, whether it's sooner or later, 
who takes over from him. That is the key, is can the Conservatives, assuming they win, produce a leader who also accepts that, the, that they can't constantly use antagonism towards Europe as the one unifying, quote unquote, thing that they've got, the one tool in their locker, because that's basically all Johnson and David Frost do. Whenever they're in a spot of bother, just blame the Europeans. And that's got to end, and not because it must end, but because I think self-interest will suggest it will eventually have to end. And then a new relationship with Europe will have to build. I think if it's somebody like, I mean, it's paradoxical, Rishi Sunak voted to leave, and yet I think he would be less antagonistic to Europe than Liz Truss, who was part of the Remain campaign yes. and who's now doing everything she can to be as hostile as she can, proclaiming, as we all remember from her Tory party speech, that the British make better cheese than the French. So don't you forget that. Mm, interesting, interesting take. We've, we've probably covered hopes and fears there, but, but any, any particular other hopes for 2022 and fears for 2022? Well, I remember the... Christmas special of the FT, another good paper. Nothing is as good as the New European, but the yeah. FT, the FT comes a close second, I would say. And they had a weekend cover around uh, the start of 2020. Um, in other words, just before the pandemic, about you know the Roaring Twenties and uh, Britain and the world. This is going to be this new era of. Um, decadence and people having fun and all that kind of thing and <laughs> the first two years of this decade have not quite begun in that way uh, thanks to a certain pandemic but the the point people often make about decades is that they, they take a long time before they define themselves everybody thinks of the 60s um, as being uh, the great time of of hippie culture of letting it all hang out of rebellion against parents and whatever else but actually Woodstock took place in the second half and the 68 revolutions took place right in the tail end and those mm. were the things that defined the decade so it could well be that we have a lightening up of uh, our lives and that people I'm not sort of a great fan of just sort of decadence for the sake of it but I do think boy, we will need at some point in, in this decade, there will be such a, and particularly for young people, an entire generation who will have gone through university or other forms of experiences in their mid-late teenage and in their early 20s, who haven't had any of the fun to which, you know, every, every other generation feels that it's entitled. And so there could well be this, this great sort of unleashing of, of, um, of fun, for the, for the 20s. It could still well be defined by that. Who knows? It seems a strange thing to do saying that in December 2021, but you never know. Hippie-ish decade. I look forward to, to your, seeing your editorial conference in your caftan. No, actually, I was a punk. And uh, if you paid me lots of money, I could show you pictures of me in the late 70s. But um, so I was never, I was never a, a caftan-wearing hippie. Tremendous. But um, I did have particular coloured hair. Oh, that's exciting! Whether it be red, red, white, and blue, like Liz Truss's, or indeed Keir Starmer's hair, uh, <laughs> what's what's the worst that could happen in twenty twenty two?
mine, mine is graying and thinning too much, but you never know, a bit of purple or a bit of green might go a long way to alleviate that. What's the worst thing that happen in 20? Yeah, oh my God. your fears for the year. I've done, I've done a lot of grimness already. Yeah, um, you have. I have done a bit of grimness. Uh, Putin invading Ukraine, something yes. I've just, just written about. China invading Taiwan. Well, that will be uh, no bundle of laughs. Um, so we could have World War Three along with uh, pandemic and more climate catastrophe. How about that, Steve? That's uh, that's a lovely thing to uh, to end on, but we won't. We'll, you've already made one bold prediction, which is uh, which was um, that uh, the, the prime minister would um, probably continue, but but um, con- continue failing. Any other bold predictions for us for twenty twenty two? When I um, started my time in journalism, I started at Reuters and the news agency, the news agency uh, that is Reuters. And I uh, was given a nickname or at least a little slogan attached to me, which was, he may be slow, but he's always wrong. So, uh, <laughs> so whatever I predict, you can guarantee the reverse will happen. So if I'm being miserable, you should feel cheery and vice versa. Um, what else? Uh, in 2022, uh, Chelsea will win the Champions League again. And um, what will happen on the on other fronts? Ooh, help me, Steve. Help me. Well, who will be the who will be the prime minister? Who will be the president of France, rather? Uh, Macron. Ah, there you go. Macron will be the president of France. What other big elections are coming up this year? That's a very Western-centric uh, view of of the world. We have the U.S. midterms. We have the um, British, uh, the U.K. council elections, rather in uh, which are in May, which is yeah. uh, which is quite a big one. Um, yeah. And is there an election in? Are we due an election in Spain? No, we're, we're no. we've got we're another year out from an election in Spain, but a lot of manoeuvring to do in the meantime. There will be about seventeen more elections in Italy. Uh, as usually as usually happens, although Draghi has been performing valiantly in Italy, but apparently he wants to become president. So at some point that government will will implode once again. The other big trend, actually, which doesn't have a date attached to it, but it's the whole question of how Europe is going to manage migration. Because I do think that is going to be one of the really big issues for for 2022. The whole migration crisis that Merkel and others had to deal with in in 2015, that some argue was one of the precursors to Brexit um, and the rise of the populist far right in in Europe and and elsewhere. In some ways, that that almost feels like an overture, because particularly if you've got more climate, you've got the total inequality of arms when it comes to vaccinations um, in the developing world. So you've got a real sense of um, population movements again, and particularly to the wealthier European countries. That is going to be an absolute uh, defining issue, not necessarily this coming year, but in, in in the next three to five years. The other thing I think, just on a cheerier note, is I'm I'm endlessly fascinated by by tech and technological change. And when are we going to start having uh you remember all the predictions about autonomous vehicles and autonomous driving? Yes. That's that's taken much longer. It hasn't quite happened yet, although yes, a lot of cars it would have been quite of... handy during the lorry driver, the ongoing lorry driver crisis. Yeah, we could have an autonomous HGV 
um, uh, HGV vehicles. Um, so that hasn't really happened, but I'm fascinated by drones and by delivery by drone, but also the prospect and the various uh, um, trial flights going on of um, transport by drone. Can you imagine? It's sort of... Um, uh, you could just see our our skies above being and uh, being populated by us in and the i remember one of the buzzwords of the blair years was the um the the opportunities but also the dangers in hyper mobility the idea that we all wanted to be in all places at all times in some ways digital has provided that for mm -hmm. us but you know i think there's so much on the drone front there's so much on the artificial intelligence front quantum computing if only i was more tech minded i would certainly advise anybody with a with a tech and creative brain to throw themselves at any of these new phenomena because in a sense that that these are going to be absolutely transformative to the way we lead our lives and it could be in a very positive way in terms of the way we tackle disease the way we tackle climate um, I do think being optimistic, and this isn't just a sugarcoat to sort of send people on their way for Christmas, uh, but I do think um, technical and technological advance has the ability not to offset the climate damage. We, we know that's, all, that's gone far too far, but also to create new ways of living that currently, because there is so much anxiety around the internet and around uh, around hate speech and uh, the misuse of of data and information, a lot of the nineties uh, and and two uh, thousands cyber optimism that people had has all dissipated or gone into reverse. But I think when it comes to other forms, there's obviously great dangers in in artificial intelligence. Um, but I also think there's the potential for extraordinary breakthroughs. Well, what a great way to, uh, to, to wrap it all up. Uh, thank you so much to John Kampfner. I will see you. We, our drones will, our, our transport drones will pass in the skies, John, I'm sure, uh, during 2022. We'll be strap hanging from a drone going at 80 miles an hour through Soho. Well, I've already got a, a drone uh, already pre-primed with Christmas carols to fly all over London, singing Christmas carols for everybody. What a marvellous man he is. John Kampfner, much more from him in The New European in 2022. Now you know what time it is. It's shame time. Oh, but first, uh, our usual reminder uh, of something that isn't shameful. In fact, it's absolutely excellent. Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives podcast. Two seasons are available now. They tell the life stories of amazing Europeans, short 10-minute bursts, it's a superb listen. It's by Charlie Connolly. Why wouldn't it be great? Everything he does is great. Uh, it's available wherever you get your podcasts. So check out Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives podcast from the New European. And finally, we get to the Hall of Shame, the last one of the year. It's where we put uh, pompous politicians, putrid pundits, things that annoy me generally. Um, Penny Mordant is in the Hall of Shame. Let's start with her. This is how the Daily Express previewed a speech by the Trade Minister Penny Mordaunt, which, which uh, she delivered in Atlanta the other day. There's quite a few of them been out on their jollies, haven't they? Truss and Anne-Marie Trevelyan. Um, Penny Mordaunt was there. Uh, the, new, the Daily Express said 
Mordaunt turns on Biden charm offensive as UK is on the brink of US deal. Um, and that's uh, not true uh, because the UK isn't on the brink of a US deal, otherwise she wouldn't have gone out there. Um, and it was a funny kind of charm offensive because her speech was all about how wrong America was to be doing favours for the EU, like dropping tariffs on steel, um, when it wasn't doing them for Britain. Um, Penny Mordaunt told America to wake up uh, and to make a choice and that if it didn't, it would be to its own detriment. It's not very charming, really. It's just more offensive. Um, She added, Brexit is not an event to be mourned by the international community or an act of self-harm or one that requires us to be punished. Uh, That's incredible. Going to America to lecture the Americans. Brexit's not an event to be mourned by the international community. Yes, it is, because it's damaging to them. Uh, Brexit's not an act of self-harm. Yes, it was. Look at the evidence. And Brexit is uh, not uh, an event that requires us to be punished. Well, the consequences of people's own actions are not punishment. They're the consequence of your own actions. Per charm offensive there. Now it's time to say Alak Gad Harumph and Widdicombe Corner for the very last time this year. In an awful column for the awful Daily Express, Anne Widdicombe writes that digital forms are a menace. Uh, digital forms, when you have to fill in a form on a website, um, she says they're a menace and we should just go back to pen and paper, which obviously would mean um, Anne Widdicombe would write something down and then somebody else would have to type it into a digital form. Um, but she thinks that would be fine. And William says the biggest offender is the drop down box, which too often does not contain the right choices. I gave up with an online application to American Express when it did not list my profession in its choices. And yet when I go to American Express and scroll down the list of occupations, weirdly sinister batshit far right granny is definitely there. Maybe Anne Widdicombe didn't get down to the W's. Now let's turn to the shadow hanging over our Christmas uh, and over all of us. Um, It is, of course, uh, what's going on outside in the world. Uh, Omicron, pandemic, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, And Joy Morrissey is in the Hall of Shame. Um, In uh, July 2020, the Tory MP Joy Morrissey wrote, free speech means being subject to opinions uh, that we may find unpalatable, but as soon as we start chipping away at free expression, we erode the very thing that makes us a democracy. And that's, I think that's, I agree with that. Today, however, on the 16th of December, 2021, John Morrissey was so outraged that scientists seemed out of line with Boris Johnson at his latest COVID press conference that she tweeted this, perhaps the unelected COVID public health spokesperson should defer to what our elected MPs and the PM have decided. I know it's difficult to remember, but that's how democracy works. It's not really how free expression works, is it? Foremost and foreleast in the Hall of Shame, there were the the Tory COVID rebels. We've got Steve Baker, um, former leader of the ARG. He says he disagrees with the current measures and he says it's okay to disagree he says experts disagree when information is incomplete and knowledge knowledge is uncertain but chris witty and his team are experts in public health and virology and things like that aren't they and steve you're an expert in banking in brexit um so i think in this case chris witty's expert opinion is is worth more than yours well to be honest with you i say expert in banking but you were working for Lehman Brothers when they weren't bankrupt. And I say expert in Brexit, but you said Brexit would be brilliant for Britain and we'd all benefit from it immediately. And it's a total 
tyre fire, Steve. It's a disaster. And talking of disasters and tyre fires, Desmond Swain has been talking in the House of Commons again, and he said, notwithstanding the carnage on our road, which is certainly killing more people than COVID at the moment, some of us still decide to drive. And it's just not true, is it? It's it's so untrue. It could have been said by the Prime Minister. There have been uh, just under 3,000 deaths on UK roads in the last two years. It's an awful tragedy, of course. Uh, And there have been around 150,000 deaths from COVID in the last few years. Um, uh, Again, a tragedy. But Desmond Swain, he said, the carnage on our roads is certainly killing more people than COVID at the moment. Uh, and he's he's 147,000 deaths out. And these are the people that are they're asking for your trust on this matter. And what's the common denominator between all of the people that we've talked about in the Hall of Shame today, apart from being Tory MPs or being ex-Tory MPs? Is there solid, true blue belief that Brexit would work when all the evidence said it wouldn't? And now we're expected to take their word for it, that science is a overreacting and that everything will be fine if we just believe in what they say and believe in Brexit and believe in Brexit Britain and believe in fairies. I mean, my bold prediction for 2022 is that borrowing a phrase from Michael Gove, the people of this country will decide that they've had enough of non-experts and this confederacy of dunces that are in charge of us now, by the end of 22 will be entering its final act. We're talking of ending our final act, that's our final podcast of the year. We'll be back on January the 6th. You've been listening to the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to all of you for listening this year. Uh, thanks so much to our producer, Ellie Longman-Rood. Episodes of the New European Podcast are out every Thursday. If you enjoyed this one, please subscribe and rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. If you'd like to enjoy more podcasts from the New European, as I mentioned, please check out Great European Lives with Charlie Connolly. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. And please visit our new website and join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. On social media, you can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow us on Twitter at The New European. Follow me on Twitter at Sangle, C-S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Until the next time we meet, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, snowflakes. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.